How many of you all have the ability to look at a tree, like a big oak tree or cherrywood tree, and examine based on the grains in it and can see all the things that it could be? A dining table, a rocking chair, right? I would imagine not very many, many of us, right? Woodworking is an art, it's a skill. It's something to take what's natural in the world, the raw materials, and to turn it into something useful. Maybe a few of us are a bit more handy, and if the woodworker, you know, cut the wood and treated it and gave us some hammer and nails and kind of set it in a pile, we could maybe turn it into something useful, something that could bear weight if we uh, set on it. But I think most everyone is, is a bit more like me. You go to Ikea, right? You grab a box off the shelf. Not only is it a table and chairs, cut perfectly with the exact measurements, holes drilled, you know, pre-drilled for you. They include all, all the, you know, the tools you need, the Allen wrench, the nuts, the bolts. But there's also an instruction manual with little pictures, right, to, to help you. But of course, what happens in my own pride, in my own hubris, I try to assemble it, you know, a couple hours later go by, Millie comes in the room and asks why it isn't done. And to her annoyance, the instruction manual is uh, sitting in the box in the corner, right? This is how it was for Israel. Israel had the law. They had the Ikea instructions. All the other nations, they needed to look at nature and listen to their conscience and try to understand and comprehend the living God. And we know, we, we saw in Romans 1.18 that they didn't do that. They knew the truth because God revealed the truth to them, but they suppressed the truth and they turned and they worshiped what was right in their own eyes. That was not Israel's experience. God chose Israel, not because they're anything special, but because of his beautiful plan to make his name known among all the nations. God displayed his power in rescuing Israel from Egypt, and then God took Moses up to a high mountain, and he gave Moses the law. And what do we mean by law as we read all through Romans? The law is a general term for the first five books of the Bible. It's, it's sometimes called the Pentateuch, the Torah. It's the stories of creation. It's God working throughout history, as well as the Ten Commandments and the other Levitical rules. The law was God's special revelation of himself, a set of lampposts based on God's righteous character to guide Israel to be set apart and to offer pleasing and acceptable sacrifices. It was a lamp to their feet that they could rightly order their lives by, and it would bring flourishing that would be like the Garden of Eden though not without thistles and thorns and the pains of childbirth. They were the only nation with a manual with little drawn pictures for them to be right with God and right with one another. But that flourishing wasn't just for themselves. They were meant to be a light to all the nations of the world to be able to say, nations, look at us over here. Come and see what flourishing looks like. We are the followers of Yahweh, the one true God. 
and look at our lives. They're good. They're right. They're beautiful. We have justice. We have peace. We have hope. We have joy. Come live like us and flourish like we do. God gave them these instructions, but like me, they assumed they knew how to do it better. Israel's big problem was that they disobeyed the instructions that God gave them for their life. They disobeyed because they did not live by faith. Today, our passage focuses on God's chosen people and how even they are not exempt from God's judgment. For you all who uh, haven't met me yet, I, my name is Joshua. I'm an elder here at Grace Church, and I'm always, always humbled to stand uh, behind this pulpit. So let me pray for us to get us started. Lord, today we pray that you will open our eyes to see Jesus. We pray that you will grow our faith, that you will reveal yourself as a treasure, that you will show us what we are to be like, and that we can learn to imitate you, Lord. Would we pray you spill through broken vessels? And in Jesus' name, amen. If you're new with us, uh, as Mary said, we are working through the book of Romans. The book of Romans stands as one of the most important theological and philosophical books in the whole Bible. And since we believe that every word in every book in the whole Bible has infinite value and worth, and it should be cherished and hidden in our hearts because it is the living word of God breathed out, then we should really seek to understand Paul in Romans, which gives a clear picture of God's glory in salvation through his righteous judgment. This gospel is an unfettered access to behold God's glory through the Spirit in the person of Jesus. Paul begins his letter by introducing himself as an apostle and praising the Romans church. He also begins to kind of unfold one of his main purposes in writing the letter, which Romans is the greatest missionary support letter ever written. By that I mean we see in Romans 15, Paul longs to go to Spain to take the gospel where it is not known. He, can't, he wants to come to Rome and he wants to minister there and possibly they send him to Spain. We see in, verse, in chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, Paul's thesis, so to speak, for the whole book. So let's look at that. Verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So for today, bookmark that last little phrase, the righteous shall live by faith. It's really important to understand Paul's argument today. So from this thesis statement, he begins his first major argument from 118 to 320, and today we find ourselves in the middle of that argument. We pick up in Romans 2, 17 to 29. So if you haven't turned there now, you can turn there. Thank you, Mary, for reading it for us. And this is an extensive argument in this, these three chapters where Paul is showing his hearers that God is righteous and we, we are not. Now, we've fallen short of the glory of God, 
Because we've fallen short of the glory of God, God's just wrath rests upon all of us. It is being revealed to sinners, both to the Gentiles who had a law, who didn't have the law, but had a law unto themselves, and to the Jews who had the law. No one is exempt from God's judgment. And in our passage today, Paul uh, turns up the heat a bit. He goes full lawyer. So imagine any courtroom drama, anything you've ever seen on TV or uh, in the news, and imagine Paul as the prosecutor. Paul is a Jew, and he is putting on trial his fellow countrymen, the Jewish people. And of course, Paul isn't talking about every Jewish person ever, but a specific group, those who are proud, who put their faith not in God, but in their Jewish, Jewish heritage and lineage. It's important to understand from the very, very, very beginning that Paul isn't writing this out of anger. No, he loves his people. We see later in Romans 9 that he would give up his own salvation if they would believe. He, he would be willing to give up his own salvation if they would just believe. Paul isn't trying to be mean. He is trying to be persuasive. He's trying to get their attention. He's embodying an Old Testament prophet in his fire and brimstone because he so badly wants them to understand their problem and to give them a solution. In this first large section, we're going to look at Paul's, uh, his, the problem that he's diagnosed. He's going to use a series of Socratic, thought-provoking questions to get their attention. Paul wants them to see that their disobedience is dishonoring to God and shaming his name among the nations. So let's get into the text, 2, 17 to 24, the problem. Verse 17, but if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having the law, the embodiment of the knowledge of truth, then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Paul starts this argument with a, a, a if, right? Don't you love when uh, someone starts a conversation with if, right? If, but if you call yourself a Jew, Paul starts by reminding them who they are. Paul lists five blessings the Jews inherited from God through the law. Blessings they have only because of God's mercy. So number one, they are a chosen people. God sought them out. Abraham didn't go looking for God. God covenanted with Abraham, and eventually he gave to his nation a means to set them apart. Number two, God's law is reliable. They can trust the law. They can stand firm on the law. They can build their lives on the rock and not on all the sinking sand. Number three, they could boast in a special relationship with God. We see this in Exodus 4, Isaiah 63. Before Jesus, Israel was the only nation that could call 
God their father. God was their father. Number four, the law allowed them to understand God's will. Since the law is based on God's love and grace and his justice and his righteousness, it reflects his character. So the law, so because of the law, they know what God's like. And because they know what God's like, they know how he, can, he is going to act in the world. And then number five, through the law, they can know right from wrong. What Adam and Eve desired all the way back in the beginning, why they ate of the fruit of the tree of knowledge, they now have in their hands. The law helps them understand what is right and what is wrong, light in this dark world. And Paul doesn't list these blessings uh, as if they're bad. These are amazing gifts from God. To be able to call God your father, to have instructions on how to live, this is amazing. But his second if, and if you're sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those in darkness, Paul then reminds them that God didn't just choose them to choose them. God always had a dual purpose in choosing them. God showed his love to them, and they had a responsibility to love God by being a people, by being his chosen people. Covenants in the Old Testament, they go two ways, kind of like marriages go two ways. If you don't know marriages go two ways, you can have that one for free today. Uh, God called them to live a life worthy of their calling, to have a biblical ethic and virtue that reflected God. Paul would have known Isaiah and how Isaiah said, to be a light to the nations. Isaiah 49, 6. He says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. So it's not good enough for just Israel. God desires to see all the nations of the world come to salvation. Paul's using these images to remind them who they are supposed to be. They're supposed to be a light to guide the blind in darkness. They're supposed to be a teacher to the ignorant and the immature. And again, the ironic part is this isn't new news to Israel. They, they know this, right? They know they're supposed to be the teachers and the preachers. They know God didn't choose them because they were some great nation. We see in Deuteronomy 7, 7, the Pentateuch, right? In the beginning, the first five books of the Bible. After the Ten Commandments, Moses starts to describe how God allowed Israel to defeat all the nations with much bigger armies. And then Moses reminds them, it was not because you were more in number than any of the other people that the Lord set his affections on you and chose you for you are the fewest of all people. They know God chose them purely by grace. After he saved them from Egypt, he gave them the law because they were his people. He had just declared as they had come out to Egypt to the whole world, right? God had sent plagues upon plagues to the greatest superpower in the known world. He had rescued his people, these slaves out of Egypt, they crossed over this sea on dry land. And then as the armies followed them, God crashed those seas into the armies. 
God declared his power as this weak nation of slaves plundered the Egyptians with their gold and silver. Then he takes them and gives them this manual, this good plan with how to order their lives by. So in other words, if you boast in your relationship with God because of the law, and if you are called to shine that law to the nations, then here comes Paul's uh, swinging accusations. Verse 21, you who teach others do you not teach yourself. So if you are so special, Israel, if you're so special, if you're so set apart, why does your life look like everybody else's? If you have the law, if you have the law, why do you worship everything that wrecks your life? If you know what's right or wrong, why do you keep choosing what's wrong? If you're the preacher, why do you not listen to your own sermon? Paul is saying, yes, God gave you the law, but just having the law, it wasn't enough. The law wasn't what saved them. Their faith was what saved them. The law meant nothing if they didn't first put their faith in the one whom saved them. So now let's look at the problem, the big problem. Verse 23. You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, Isaiah 52.5, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of the big problem Paul wants his countrymen to see is their disobedience. And their disobedience has two terrible consequences. It both dishonors God, as if that wasn't bad enough, right? It dishonors God. And it blasphemies God's name among the nations. Israel missed the whole point of the law. They missed the whole point of being chosen. They boasted in the law as if it was some shield from God's punishment. But they missed the whole point because their faith wasn't in God. If they had faith in God, they would have treasured the law. Instead, they were like a child with a McDonald's Happy Meal toy that after an hour, it just kind of sits in the corner of the house, completely ignored. If they treasured the law, they would have understood its infinite value and worth. They would have built their lives in such a way. They would have seen it as this precious philosophy rather than an identity that gave them this false sense of freedom to pursue everything that God had warned them about. If they valued the law, they would have obeyed the law. And if they obeyed the law, we would have known that they valued the law. Ultimately, they misplaced their faith. They put their faith in their name, in their bloodline, in their heritage, and not in the person who named them. Ultimately, they misplaced their faith on their blessings and not in the God who gave them their name. And again, worse than that, because again, there's a dual purpose in this. God gave them this law of, as a mercy, first to experience this Garden of Eden-like flourishing, but second, if they lived like that, the other nations would have seen God as good and glorious. 
because God had named them and because they did not treasure his law, their lives reflected a false picture of what God was like. Their lives blasphemed God's name among the nations. They looked just like everybody else. And listen how the prophets described historical Israel. Okay, so this is how the prophets describe historical Israel. Micah 6, Israel was greedy, dishonest in their dealings. They were violent and they worshiped idols of other gods. Isaiah 1 says, they didn't defend the helpless. The orphans and the widows, they just didn't defend them. Amos 2 emphasizes these abuses of power against the poor. It says, they trampled the head of the poor into the dust of the earth. And they abused them both financially and carnally. Hosea 4, they swore, they lied, they murdered, they stole, they committed adultery, bloodshed upon bloodshed, and they worshiped at temples with cult prostitutes. But again, Paul is writing to the church of Rome. He isn't just bashing the Jews for their history. He's writing to a real church. The Roman church was made up of Gentiles and Jews, and Paul is criticizing these Jews as being unregenerate. If these Jews were saved by Jesus, they would have treasured him as the Messiah, and they would still not be living like their ancestors. Evidently, right here we see they're stealing, they're committing adultery, they're robbing the temples, most likely participating in temple parties. Their problem is that these hearers in the Roman church were disobedient to God. They still believed that their bloodline would shield them from their sins. And they were saying to all the other nations, look at us, look at us. We are the people of the one true God. But now Paul wants them to see the solution. Yes, they are disobedient, but it's because they have a heart of stone. So Paul's going to ask a few more Socratic questions, and then he's going to get to his solution. And especially if English is not your first language, I do uh, hang in with some of these metaphors, and I'll I'll try to kind of decode it afterwards uh, so we do uh, understand that. So verse 25, verse 25. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the law, the written code, and circumcision but break the law. So who all got that on the first try, right? Now, why why so much about circumcision, right? If if you aren't as familiar with the Old Testament, think of it like, like baptism, Right? Baptism is a Christian symbol. It's a living sermon that we are dead in our trespasses and we are raised with Jesus. When we first become a Christian, we're baptized and that's sort of a symbol to everyone else that we are with Christ. We are giving our lives to Jesus. Circumcision was like that for the Jews. It was kind of a, one of the first acts that declares that we are in the covenant community. So it's an external symbol that they are Jewish. They are the people of God. 
So if you went to home group this week, or if you weren't able to go to home group this week, or if you haven't been connected to one of our home groups, uh, I, I, I put in the leader's notes uh, an attempt to kind of rewrite or kind of deconstruct a lot of these metaphors into simpler language. So try this translation out, which is much worse, much less nuanced, but I think a bit more uh, ESL readable. Okay, so verse 25, verse 25, uh, worse translation, but... For being the chosen people of God indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, you cannot call yourself the chosen people of God. Verse 26. So if a man who is a Gentile keeps the precepts of the law, will not his unchosen standing be regarded as chosen standing? Verse 27. Then if he who is physically a Gentile but keeps the law, will condemn the Jewish community who have the truth of God and blessings of being a chosen people, but they break the law. Paul is just continuing to remind Israel, you had the law. You were the chosen people. You knew the truth, but you didn't keep the law. You left the Ikea manual in the box. You didn't obey the truth that God gave you. He uses this hypothetical situation with this Gentile to get to a really important point that they have the law, right? But they're not obeying it. But what matters the most? Being born into the tribe of Israel or obeying the God of Israel? Being born into the tribe of Israel or obeying the God of Israel? And we know this is hypothetical, right? Romans 1.18, there's no one, everyone has suppressed the truth. Romans 3.12, there is none righteous, no, not one. This is a hypothetical situation to get their attention. So finally, we get to Paul's solution. Verse 28. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart. By the Spirit, not by the letter, his praise is not from man, but from God. Israel's relationship with God was never primarily about the law. It was always about their relationship with God through faith. The righteous shall live by faith. The battle against sin and idolatry it was never an external battle, but an internal battle. To be a child of God, to be a descendant of Abraham, it was not about this bloodline, this circumcision outwardly, but a circumcised heart, a changed heart. If you want to see this in other, other places, just read Hebrews 11. Abel, by faith. Abraham, by faith. Moses, by faith. Jericho, the walls fell down because of faith. Hebrews 11 gives a long explanation of Old Testament characters and how by faith they followed God. The law was a means, the law wasn't a means to God. The law is always a reflection of our faith. How they lived and how we all live is a reflection of what's going on inside of our hearts. If they had faith, they would have obeyed the law because they would have believed that God will fulfill all of his promises to flourish them. So let's just look at a few, right? 
Think about the law of the Sabbath, the law of the Sabbath, the day of rest, right? So in, in uh, Leviticus, you're uh, meant to only work six days, and on the seventh day, you rest, right? It's, it's saying we trust that God will provide for us on the day that we rest. So sorry, Kobe, taking a day off. Uh, we trust that God will provide for us. But how about the fact that every seven years, on the seventh year, they weren't to work the land at all. They were to rest the land. Okay, so that's having a a lot more faith. It's trusting that for six years, we're going to work the land, and on the seventh year, we're just, we're going to rest it, right? I mean, it wouldn't work in our culture, but that sounds amazing to me, right? Six years, we all save. Seventh year, we take a, you know, really long holiday, too European for Abu Dhabi, but uh, but even more than that, okay, even more than the seven years, think about the year of Jubilee, the year of Jubilee. On the 50th year, all the land that was leased, that was mortgaged, that was acquired, all of that land was to go back to the original landowners all the slaves, all the indentured servants just set free. So all you economists and business guys and girls, think about it. You work your whole life. You make good financial decisions. You acquire more land. You have people helping you work that land. And then the year of Jubilee comes and everything but, with you, everything but what you started with just goes back. You just give it all up. So now, do you have the faith to believe that God will provide for you? Not in your own skill, but in God. But again, if we zoom out, can't we see God's purposes in this, right? God desires that the community flourish together. God knows that if we put our faith in money and production, we will be a slave to it. It will wreck our relationships with God first, and then with one another. And I'm not saying commerce, production, these are bad things. But if we, the people of God, put our faith in money, we're no different than the rest of the world. We're no different than any other religion. We just look like everybody else. Everybody else puts their faith in money. So Paul is driving this point hard because he wants his readers to see who's in and who's out. Who is a covenant member of God and who's not? Who's saved and who's not? God chose Israel, but the Jews still had to respond in faith. So unless they have a new heart, right? Unless they have a new heart, they couldn't respond back. There was nothing external or outwardly that saved the Jews. There was nothing external or outwardly that saves us. It has always been about a transformed heart. And I love the way Paul ends this kind of thought, this section, right? Verse 29, he says, his praise is not from man, but from God. I think this is such a great image, right? I mean, think about what that means. His praise is not from man, but from God. God is the only one that sees our heart. And when we do the hard work, of uh, forgiving someone, right? Loving someone that's hard to love. 
Only God sees that. Nobody else does. We can be really, really nice to someone publicly and hate them in our hearts. We can be a really nice person publicly and be completely rotten on the inside. Only God sees our hearts. And if we care about God's praise, we will submit to him to change our hearts. We will do the heart work because we want the praise of God and not just the praise of man. And I do want to pause here for a second because again, this can sound really daunting. Like how can we change our hearts? How can we be obedient to this standard that uh, only Jesus lived up to? Right? And it is, it is daunting at first. But actually this truth should give us incredible joy. If we were responsible on our own to follow the law, what does Romans tell us? We are destined to fail. We are blind in our sin. We suppress the truth. We put our faith in everything that cannot save us. But it wasn't God's plan to leave us to figure it out. Paul's argument is, is an allusion to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 22 to 26. Verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God. It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for the sake of my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations to which you came. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, and which you have profaned among them. And the nations will know that I am the Lord. I am Yahweh, declares the Lord God. When through you, I will vindicate my holiness before their eyes. I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be cleaned from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and I will give you a heart of flesh. We could have never had faith on our own unless God acted first. We see, like I said, in the Old Testament, God gave faith to this remnant of people. And in the New Testament, the Lord vindicates his name, which Israel profaned and blasphemed among all the nations through the person and the work of Jesus. God cares so much about his name among the nations he sent his own son, Jesus, to come to earth and to die on a cross. He was born a baby. He grew up into a man and he perfectly followed the law, every letter of the law, teaching with someone who had authority because he and the triune God wrote the law. And he chose with full will and power to go to the cross for our sins. God's just wrath and God's perfect mercy for sinners met as he poured the cup of suffering on his son. Jesus died righteous so that when we put our faith in him, we are given his 
righteousness. God sprinkles us clean. He opens our eyes to see that all of the idols that we're building our lives around, none of them compare to the surpassing worth of Jesus. Once we put our faith in Jesus, God, through the Holy Spirit, gives us a new heart, a new spirit. He takes our heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. When we come to Christ, he radically transforms us from the inside out. God knew we could never, ever find him in darkness. So he made a way, the light of men, and he sought us out, even when we wanted nothing to do with him, even when we were so focused on our own desires. So three implications, three implications. Number one, Jesus did what Israel could not do. Israel was called to be God's people and a light to the nations, but they failed in their calling. They blasphemed God's name among the nations. What Israel failed to do, Jesus didn't. Jesus accomplished God's purposes for the nations. That's why in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Only Jesus is the reflection of God. Only through Jesus can we see through the darkness of this world. If you are here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, maybe it's not in your heritage, maybe it's not in your bloodline, but it's in something. If you are here today and you haven't put your faith in Jesus, I urge you, we urge you, as long as it is still called today, put your faith in him. You are living your life in blindness. All the decisions you're making, honestly, you may be doing your best. But you are continuing to make those decisions based on what feels good, based on what seems right. But it just will not return to you what you need. Joy, hope, love, peace, all of those are found in Jesus. We have the light to see what is good, what is right, and what is beautiful through Jesus you have put your faith in Jesus, Jesus has given his church that responsibility now. The church is the body of Christ, the bride of Christ until his return. We are now the light for the nation. So how are we to do that? Implication number two, implication number two. Through Jesus, we can experience Garden of Eden-like flourishing in this life which points to the next life. Through Jesus, we can experience Garden of, like, Garden of Eden-like flourishing in this life, which points to the next life. In Matthew 5-7, to the Sermon on the Mount is this radical ethic that we are all called to live by as we imitate Christ. And it is radically countercultural. Let me just list a few of them. Uh, 5.21-26, we don't let anger fester but we even leave our offering at the altar to go find the person who has something against us to make it right. 527 to 30. We don't say that our lust problem is other people dressing badly. No, no, no. Our lust problem is our problem. We take responsibility for that. If we are stumbling, we need to do something like cut off our hand to stop it. It's not someone else's problem. It's our problem. 
533 to 37. Our yes is our yes. We are not liars. We can be trusted in business, with our landlords. When someone asks for help, we can be trusted. 538 to 48. We don't retaliate when someone does something wrong to us, but we turn the other cheek. We love our enemies and we pray for those who persecute us. 6, 1 through 18. We are generous without needing anyone to look at us. We pray simple, heartfelt prayers in our closet without anyone needing to look at us. We turn, uh, we fast without anyone needing to look at us, right? 6, 19 to 24. We don't serve God and money. Our treasure is in heaven, and we use all of our resources to bring more and more and more people into heaven. And it just, it keeps going, right? Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. But again, we're not moralists here, right? Uh, we, we're not moralists who believe that we have to live up to this ridiculous standard in order to be saved. Our salvation is through faith. Our salvation is through faith. But as we put our faith in Jesus, we are transformed into his likeness from the inside out. So we should as we progress as Christians, look more and more and more like this community. So why aren't we those people? When the same way Paul writes to Rome, we need to hear this warning. We cannot be like Jesus if we don't put our faith in him and we don't treasure him. We don't have an obedience problem. We have a faith problem. Obedience always follows faith. So again, going... Think about trusting, right, with our finances. The more we trust God to provide for us, the more we will live generously, the more we will live in faith, the more we will step out on circumstances that we think are just daunting. Because the more we have our faith that God will provide for us, the more we can live our lives. How much we value his word and how much we value his church might be an indicator of where our hearts are. Not just might, it is. It is an indicator of where our hearts are. Even with transformed hearts, we can backslide into old blind habits. Paul is not calling Rome to be perfect, nor are we expecting anyone in this room to be perfect. We will never be perfect on this side of heaven. But even though we will never be perfect, by the Spirit, we can look more and more and more like Jesus. Again, not by our own strength, but we do have new hearts. If we fix our eyes on Jesus, we will start to look more like Jesus. And Jesus was all of those things on the Sermon on the Mount without error. The more we behold him, the more our faith grows, the more our faith grows, our obedience will follow. But just imagine if we were those people. Right? Imagine how amazing it would be to come to church and home group. The joy and the flourishing with God and one another. In a second, the Sadiat home group is going to come over here and we're going to, you know, if anyone needs prayer, we're going to ask you to come. Imagine that instead of worrying that someone's going to judge you, you get excited and you run as soon as the service is over to ask for someone to pray for you and encourage you in, the, in your struggles and in your sin. Imagine if we could be that church that we see 
one another as an encouragement that we can share our problems. Our church would be radically different if we lived a life worthy of our calling in Jesus. So number three, our disobedience still blasphemies God's name. So now keep imagining if we were those people, how would Abu Dhabi not be transformed? How would the people we work with, the people we see at the gym, the people we sit across from coffee, our landlords, our neighbors, not desire that kind of life and that kind of community? I promise you that every person in this city wants more hope, more joy, and certainly they want to know that the wrath of God does not sit on their shoulders. And again, I do not think that we need to be perfect before we share God's message. No, that is the message, right? The message is we are not perfect. Jesus was perfect. And we come to Jesus in faith and Jesus makes our imperfections perfect. We are not perfect. We should, we should share out of our imperfections, right? Because of grace. But that being said, we do need to look at ourselves and ask, does my life reflect the joy and the hope and the love of Jesus? Am I radically different than all the other religions, or do I sort of just look like everybody else? Israel had the law, but they looked like everybody else. They did not live by the law. We have Jesus, which is far greater than the law, but if we are not careful, we will still look like everybody else because we are not living to imitate Jesus. We are doing what's right in our own eyes. If the Jews had lived like they were called, the nations would have seen God as good and glorious because they didn't see it as a precious philosophy to build their life around, but rather an identity which gave them this freedom to pursue everything else they wanted, everything that God warned them about. They reflected a false God. We need to ask ourselves, do we treasure what we teach? And if the answer is no, then we are no less hypocritical claiming to the city of Abu Dhabi that we know what God is like, but we are a black hole to his light. Israel's responsibility was to live where other nations would come and see. But now the church has a dual responsibility. We are to come and see. The nations come and see at what Grace Church looks like how we treat other evangelical churches in the city, come and see what we look like. But also we have a responsibility in the New Testament to go and tell, to go and share the gospel. Let me pray with us. Father, Lord, we do uh, humbly come to you and just thank you that it is not by our will, it is not by our good works, it is not by anything that we bring to the table. It is only because of Jesus. We have no chance to find you without Jesus. We have no chance to please you without Jesus. We have no chance to bring you good sacrifices without Jesus. It is only through Jesus who transforms our heart and leads us into good paths, who leads us by still waters, who leads us to green pastures, Lord. And so we do pray that today you grow our faith because we know if we have more faith in you, our obedience will follow. And in Jesus' name.